Is it love or is it a trauma bond? My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. I apologize for the delay, y'all. I was on vacation. I tried to record down there. It sounded like shit. I am always trying to have the best experience for your ears. So I'm back here in my closet recording next to my cat's litter box. (laughs) So today we are diving deep into trauma bonding, which is a psychological response to abuse in which a victim develops an unhealthy connection with their abuser. Yes, super uplifting as always. But I do think that this is a really fascinating topic. There is a lot to unpack here. For today, I just want to cover the basics and talk about why growing up in a dysfunctional family puts us at a greater risk for finding ourselves in trauma bonds in adulthood. Just another wonderful perk of having a fucked up childhood. Lucky us. And then I am talking to writer, poet, memoirist, Alan Kaufman. Now, I love all of my interviews, but this one today I am really excited for you guys to hear. Alan's mother is a Holocaust survivor, and his relationship with his mother during his childhood is truly a textbook example of a trauma bond between a parent and a child. So stay tuned for that. So here are some red flags that you are in a trauma-bonded relationship. You want to leave someone. Perhaps you don't even like them, but you can't seem to get away. You justify their mistreatment towards you. You justify their abuse. Oh, he just had a bad day or, oh, he didn't mean it. You keep the reality of the relationship, i.e. the bad shit, a secret from your friends and family. Yes, I have been there. You fantasize about the good old days, the days of yore when they treated you well, when they made you feel special and loved, and you just have this delusional hope that things will go back to the way they once were. Or perhaps they promise that they've changed or that they won't hurt you anymore or they'll stop whatever the problematic behavior is, but it's only a matter of time before it's business as usual. And lastly, and I think this this is probably the best indicator of a trauma bond, you're in a relationship that you would never want anyone you care about to be in. Basically, every fucking relationship that I have been in. So where does this term come from, trauma bond? The term was coined by Dr. Patrick Carnes in his book, The Betrayal Bond. Check it out. It is definitely a must-read for adult children. So he coined this phrase to describe how the misuse of fear, excitement, and sexual feelings can be used to basically trap or entangle another person. He defines a trauma bond as a dysfunctional attachment that occurs in the presence of danger, shame, and exploitation. 
So in layman's terms, a trauma bond is an unhealthy emotional attachment a victim develops with their abuser in which they mistake abuse for love. Now, trauma bonds come in all shapes and sizes, but they tend to have two main characteristics, the first being a cyclical nature. Trauma bonds are typically perpetuated by inconsistent positive reinforcement, meaning the relationship isn't all bad. Sometimes they treat you well, and sometimes they treat you like shit. Now, it's generally easier to leave a situation that is entirely bad, although I wouldn't put it past an adult child to stay in a completely bad relationship. But if occasionally they treat us well, we justify, we tolerate, we minimize the bad, even if the good is just mere crumbs, and boy, do I have an extensive history with mere crumbs, 99% bad, 1% crumbs, I'll take that shit all damn day, sounds like a perfectly loving and healthy relationship to me. So relationships that are trauma bonds, they go through these periods of highs and lows, cycles of love and abuse. This could look like someone physically abusing you, followed by them showering you with love and affection. Uh, This could be someone being verbally abusive towards you, but then taking you on a shopping spree. But it could also be a lot more subtle, and I'll use my childhood as an example. Having a parent vacillate between being available and unavailable, whether that's physically or emotionally, or a child having to switch between playing the role of parent and child. When my mother was intoxicated, she was no longer emotionally or physically available to me, and I had to step into the role of caretaker. And my dad was basically only emotionally present for me when my mom was drunk. And these were also the times that I had to step into the role of being his emotional support and confident. Shocking that I then found myself in relationships with emotionally unavailable alcoholics. So the other main characteristic of a trauma bond is a power imbalance. And this is why growing up in a dysfunctional family puts us at such a great risk of developing traumatic bonds later on because of the traumatic bonds that we developed with our parents. Trauma bonds are often perpetuated when the person who is our main source of support is also our abuser, when the person that we rely upon to fulfill our emotional and physical needs is also the source of our pain. Affection, love, it is a basic human need, but especially so in childhood. Children seek attention from their caregivers, even if they are violent or abusive, because we do not know any better. So we learn to conflate love and abuse, and the repercussions of this are dire. This relationship pattern then becomes internalized, and it affects all of our future relationships. And it's really, really hard to break free of a trauma bond because our brains literally become addicted to it. The highs and lows of trauma bonds create this cocktail of neuropeptides, cortisol, adrenaline, oxytocin, and this actually strengthens the bond of the relationship within our brain. And for me personally, learning this did provide me with a little relief to realize that it wasn't me just making bad decisions or me choosing to stay in these toxic relationships. I literally had become addicted to the highs and the lows of the relationship. And this also meant that this was something that was fixable, that through 
rewiring, reprogramming, therapy, trauma therapy, all of that shit, that this was something that I could work through and learn to do things differently in subsequent relationships. So I think that's enough out of me for now. As always, five-star rating on Apple Podcast, if you'd be so kind. And now for my conversation with Alan Kaufman. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. It is my pleasure to introduce Alan Kaufman. He is an American writer, a memoirist, a poet, a recovering alcoholic, a recovering adult child, and we are so excited to have him here today. Welcome, Alan. Well, thank you very much for having me, Andrea. Pumped to have you here. So a few days ago, I spoke with Mark Wolin, and he is the author of It Didn't Start With You. It's about generational trauma and epigenetics. And in that book, they talk about how they did a study. I'm not exactly sure who did it, but they looked at the genetics of uh, Holocaust survivors and their children. And then they compared those to Jews who, who had lived outside of Europe during World War II and looked at their offspring's genetics and that they could see when they looked at this one particular gene that's responsible for PTSD and you know, anxiety disorders, they could see a little marking on it between the Holocaust survivors and their children that didn't exist in the control group. And then also in my conversation with him, he just talks so much about our relationship with our mother and how much that impacts us. And there's a lot of things I want to talk with you about, but I think that that would be a great place to start because um, you have quite a juicy story there. So do you want to just talk a little bit about your mother's history before we kind of go into your relationship with her? Yeah, sure. Um, so my mother, whose name was Mar- Marie Jurst Kaufman, mm-hmm. Kaufman being her married name, but Marie Jurst before she was married, uh, was born in Paris uh, and um, was 12 years old when the Nazis invaded France and came into Paris. Um, they, she was being Jewish, her family was Jewish. Um, the Nazis made them all wear the yellow star. And uh, so she was wearing the yellow star. She had one interaction with directly with a Nazi um, where a Nazi officer was stepping out of a car. She was 12 years old and she was unaware of the rules that the Nazis had imposed on the Jews. And uh, she was walking down the sidewalk and apparently crossed in front of him as he was stepping out of his command car. And, you know, big Nazi officer with big jack boots um, beat her in senseless on the sidewalk when she was 12, Mm. you know, kicking her, punching her, and then threw her out of the way. And uh, she, you know, ran (laughs) in terror after that beating. Um, But that was the only direct impact, you know, interaction physically she had with with the Nazis until um, they came to arrest her and her whole family for deportation Mm -hmm. um, to Auschwitz. Was this also when she was 12? This is when she was 12. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they came July 21st, 1942. Um, and um, they, it was part of a roundup of all Jews of Polish Jewish descent. Um, she was a French, she was born in Paris. So she was of French descent, but her mother, her father, her brothers were born in Poland before they emigrated to Paris. So um, they were looking to send all of them to Auschwitz um, and they came up to uh, their home, their apartments. Um, they lived in a kind of Jewish neighborhood, very poor and uh, emigre neighborhood and, uh, you know, banged on the door and all of the, the men in the family had gone to places in the south of France to hide when the Nazis invaded. They, my mother's, my grandmother believed as many of the Paris Parisian Jews did that they would not harm the women and children, that they just were looking for men, the men. And uh, they didn't know about death camps. They were looking for forced labor, they thought. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the men had gone to hide and my mother and her mother were in Paris. And so when the, Nazi, when the gendarme, who was a French gendarme, a French policeman, um, came in and said, you know, with a list of the names of the men, you know, where are they? And my grandmother said, they're in the south of France. They've, they've gone on vacation, she said. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, okay. He said, uh, you and your daughter uh, pack, you know, X kilos of clothing, belongings, and take food and come downstairs. So my grandmother knew immediately mm -hmm. that this was not going, they were not going to a labor camp. My mother said they, she looked out the window and saw her best friend who was also 12 and her best friend's family coming down the stairs with suitcases and holding babies and little children. And she's like, they're not going to send them to a work camp. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother knew they were going to be killed. Mm -hmm. She just knew it. There was something about it. She just knew. And there had been rumors, you know. So anyway, um, my grandmother said to the gendarme, no, we're not going to take anything where we're going. We won't need anything. And my, my mother began to cry hysterically. She understood my grandmother saying we're going to die. Anyway, they went. My grandmother gave my gr mother a sweater, which did not have the Jewish star. And, my gran and she said, put that over your arm. And my grandmother also took a sweater that did not have the Jewish star. Put it over on. If you wore a garment without the Jewish star, and you would you would be shot on the spot. Mm -hmm. That was the rule. You'd be executed. So what they were doing was already very daring. My grandmother, though, was a very bright woman. She had kept these garments with Jewish stars on them. Who knows for what reason? Anyway, they went downstairs, and when they went downstairs, they saw twenty thousand Jews. <laughs> being loaded into trucks, I mean, up and down the entire length of the streets, the neighborhood, um, to be deported. And this gendarme uh, said, where's your belongings? Where's your food? That The one who had arrested them. And my grandmother said, uh, where we're going, we won't need any belongings. We won't need any food. And uh, the gendarme said, look, you're going to need some food. So go across the street, he said, to the boulangerie is a bakery. He knew. He was kind of letting them go. He said, go across the street to the boulangerie and buy some bread for the journey. 
They went across the street, they turned the corner and they ran for their lives and they hid in a doorway. And it's a long story, but anyway, they escaped that roundup and then began this journey of three years um, all the way through the south of France into the north of Italy. And that ended up with the Italian resistance in the north of Italy um, where they were, my mother was, were fighting with the Italian resistance. Um, and my mother was like a little girl. <laughs> she was loading machine gun bullets. They were nose to nose with Nazis trying to take them uh, on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I went, I traveled mm-hmm. uh, to, the, uh, to the exact village where they were hiding with the resistance. And I met the family of the resistance people who had saved my mother's life. So anyway, that's the long and version. And so then I know that she ended up in um, Venezuela. And then how did she end up in the U.S.? So after the war, um, they wouldn't let a lot of Jews were trying to get into New York, into America. They wouldn't let them in. They had very strict quotas. So um, the only place they could get to, my, they wanted to leave France. They wanted to get out of Europe. Too many, you know, six million Jews were killed. Mm-hmm. They wanted out of Europe. So they went to uh, Caracas, Venezuela. My mother went alone. She was like 17. Wow. She went by herself, 18. She was like 18. She went to Caracas, Venezuela and, um, and began to, she started a children's clothing factory. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She was an amazing person. Um, so, and then she came to New York in uh, 19... 50, I think, 1949, 1949. And she met my father, who was this devastatingly handsome guy, uh, you know, Bronx guy, you know, boxer, you know, anyway, he's very handsome. And they were like 19 years old, 20 years old. How did they meet? They met through you know, what they call in Yiddish a shirach, uh-huh. <laughs> two old aunts yeah, yeah, who yeah. kind of introduced them that's what they would do back then mm-hmm. oh i have a nephew oh i have a niece let's introduce them and uh my mother was innocent she was completely completely innocent you know her whole life as a teenager had been spent running from nazis mm-hmm. she didn't have dates she didn't have boyfriend you know she didn't have any of that stuff you know they were hiding in chicken coops and you know in caves <laughs> so they didn't you know she didn't have a normal childhood. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say so. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> you know, no teen years, you know, no, her teen years were just a nightmare. Mm. So, you know, my father, you know, this is a guy with a fourth grade education, gambling, and he came from kind of sketchy stuff. And um, he quickly swept her off her feet, quickly. And uh, anyway, they got married. That's what happened. So did he work at all? Because I know that, I mean, I know that he was a, a criminal, but did he have like an actual <laughs> job? <laughs> you know, criminal is like a, a romantic. Yeah, that's true. Version Girl, of him. He was a gangster. failed whatever he was. You know, he was a failure. And he really was. Um, and I hate to say that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened was he was working off and on in the post office. You know, he was doing illegal stuff. And uh, we were always poor, near starvation. 
and hiding, also running and hiding a lot. And uh, in America, mm -hmm. in a way, we were replicating my mother's experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and my father was just never there. He was just always somewhere else. We traveled around the country with my mother on Greyhound buses, my brother and I. And um, hungry, poor, and afraid. Mm -hmm. And um, But what happened was he kind of settled down when we turned like 12. He was like, in, we settled in the Bronx and he kind of settled into this job at the post office. And he worked off and on, on the post, at the post office more regular than not. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the most stable, yeah, that we were. So just really quickly. So did, did you end up reuniting with your father? Like when you guys escaped, did he come back and go with you guys or were you just with? Uh, he did. He flew out to Los Angeles. Um, we were in Los Angeles, like stranded, broke. Sorry. I, I did not, us. I did not ask the right question. Your mother's father, did he reconnect with them? They went down to the South of France. Did they end up reconnecting? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They did. They did reconnect. They did reconnect. They did reconnect and uh, they went back to Paris and then my mother left yep. for Caracas. And then she brought over like brothers and then her mother and then her father, they came uh, to Caracas. And, but a big part of the family stayed in Paris. Uh -huh. the ones that but everyone in her immediate family survived, correct? Everyone that I know of did. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was one... There was a brother, Jack, who we understand was involved with the resistance, the French resistance, he was tortured, mm. all this stuff. So, yeah, but I, I, presume, I never met Jack. I never saw even a picture of him, mm -hmm. but they would speak about him. So we don't really know the whole story. That's kind of classic characteristic of Holocaust survivors. You never really know the whole story. Mm -hmm. You know some of the story because they would water it down for the kids. They didn't want to shock the kids. So. so I want to talk about when you were five. So yeah. you're born, you, uh, you're a twin. You have a fraternal twin brother, correct? And then, correct. um, <clears throat> so your mother gets pregnant when you're four or five, um, and then ends up losing the baby. And that was like a very pivotal moment in your life. And so I was hoping that you could talk about that. Sure. Um, so, you know, there she is in the Bronx, <laughs> with these two twin, these twins, these two little boys, and my father never there. And uh, alone in the, pro we were living in the projects, mm -hmm. the Patterson House projects. Um, all of my classmates in kindergarten, first grade, second, we're African-Americans. There was like, we were completely in another, we were the exceptions to the rule. Did you feel different? Like, did you know that you were different? No, no when you're a kid, you know, you don't, yeah. you don't notice that stuff. We only become conscious of that later. Mm -hmm. But no, we were little kids. We lo I loved living in the projects. I had all my friends were African-Americans. Uh, we played together. We were best buddies, you know? Yeah, it like we're all living in the same house. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, <laughs> it was fine. Um, so, um, but yeah, when, but what happened was she wanted very desperately to have a, a little girl. Mm -hmm. And she got pregnant and it was a little girl and she lost it at term. Mm -hmm. Um, when the baby was born, she lost the baby. She went off to the hospital. Before she went to the hospital, my mother was the sweetest, sweetest, nicest mom 
I have still wonderful memories of her. You know, you could bring home a bird with a broken wing. She would take it in and fix the wing and, you know, and keep it. And you could bring home stray dogs. We brought home stray dogs. You know, this was the Bronx, you know, the 1950s. Some of these stray dogs were like little bears. I mean, <laughs> you know, with a rope around its neck. And we would bring it home. And my mother would like feed it with bread and milk and take care of it. And my father always made us throw them out. But she was a great, great. And she told stories and she taught us to sing. She was wonderful. When she came back from the hospital after losing that little girl, she had, you know, she was mentally changed, mm-hmm. mentally changed. Um, she had postpartum depression. She became violent. And all this stuff about the Holocaust began to surface in like, she kind of singled me out as the one to tell these stories to about the Holocaust, which were nightmarish. They were my Harry Potter tales. And, uh, you know, really nightmarish stuff. But to me, I didn't know, you know, to me, it was like an adventure story, you know, but it was nightmarish. And she would beat me badly. And then after the beatings, She'd go into her bedroom and take out this suitcase. And she, they had, she had these photographs of people from her family and friends who had died in the Holocaust. These photographs had survived somehow. And she would, she would look at these photographs and I would come in and she would, I would ask her questions. So we developed this bond around memory and the Holocaust and loss. And it was in those moments that I felt the most loved by my mother. Because she would change. She would become almost like the young girl who's 16, 17 in the war. And nice, you know, very nice young lady. <laughs> and uh, her face would change. Her voice would change. And her manner towards me became very sweet and kind. And Talk about confusing and dysfunctional. <laughs> oh, it was crazy. And then, But also the other personality would break through that facade. And suddenly she would snap and become not so nice. That is like the perfect example of a trauma bond. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. What do you remember her telling you? Like you're five years old. What is she telling you about the Holocaust? Um, well, she told me, you know, that um, like it was a, a mixture of like nightmare and, you know, adventure story. You know, the nightmare was, you know, the Nazis wanted to put us in gas chambers. The Nazis were tr- burning Jews in crematorium, the Nazis throwing them alive. The Nazis, you know, threw babies into the air and and they landed on the Nazi bayonets. The Nazis picked up babies and bashed their brains against walls, you know, stuff like that. And then mixed with like stories, adventure stories about commando raids by the partisans, you know, the brave things they did. You know, I thought that her stories must have been like when I grew up. I was like, no, those stories are impossible. You know what? I went back to the exact place in northern Italy where she was hiding with the underground, the Italian partisans. Every single thing she said was exactly right. Exactly true. Do you remember learning about the Holocaust and like thinking like, no, because this was a time, you know, I'm 69 years old now. So we're talking about 1950s, 1960s. Nobody talked about the Holocaust. The Holocaust was like among Jews, too. It's like, we don't don't talk about that. Um, Nobody talked about the Holocaust. It wasn't until 
the emergence of like Elie Wiesel, the writer and who won the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize, the Holocaust survivor, yep. that you had the beginnings of Jewish studies, Holocaust studies and Jewish studies departments. And so I went to the first class on the literature of the Holocaust taught by Elie Wiesel when I was at City College of New York. Wow. And the very first one, I mean, it was the first time ever that this was discussed anywhere in a classroom setting and, you know, began to learn that there's a history to this and there's um, other meanings than the ones we, uh, you know, kind of picked up that, you know, Jews went like sheep to the slaughter. That's what we used to hear. They went like sheep to the slaughter. Don't talk about it because it's very shameful. I was like, my mother didn't go like a sheep to the slaughter. She was in a resistance unit. I mean, when she was like 15. So I knew there was another narrative, but I found no corroboration, no substantiation of any of that until Jewish studies began to emerge. And I began to study with the authorities, the scholars, the historians. And then I saw, oh yeah. And then books began to roll out and, you know, um, so, uh, so you had this whole other na narrative emerge. You know, I moved to Israel and I lived in Israel for seven years. I served in the military there and the army. At what age? Um, I was 26 when I went there. I moved, I was in the Israeli army. I became an Israeli citizen. Um, and I served, I served in two wars. What happened was in 1984, I came back from Israel and I had met Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly, who wrote, you know, he did Mao's and, um, and other, and Sonia Hanna Pilser, an author, and others who had the origins that I had, you know, children of Holocaust survivors. And we were invited to a group meeting of children of Holocaust survivors who were writers and artists by a woman named Eva Fogelman. She was a pioneer in attempting to launch something that became known as the second generation or 2G. And uh, we had no awareness that we were part of like a generation, that we had our own identity and our own set of problems and our own set of um, also strengths. We were unaware of that. And like you've mentioned, you know, about the genetics, there's been a study, there were studies done in Israel also that we have a different genetic setup than normal people, you know, that we have <laughs> the trauma is, is in our genes, even if we're, you know, third generation, fourth generation is transmitted. Anyway, so this awareness came about eventually that we were part of a generation and, um, of children of Holocaust survivors, that we had our own identity and our own set of strengths and problems. Yeah. So I was thinking about your relationship with your mom and I almost wonder in a way if you kind of filled the role of your father in certain respects. Yes, I was definitely, definitely her little substitute husband. No question. She couldn't speak to my father about this stuff. He didn't even want to know. And um, so I became her confidant. You know, it set up the whole classic edible complex conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, I became, you know, her appointed savior. You know, I was the one who was going to save her, rescue her from the Holocaust and rescue her from all of this. 
And of course, that was impossible. It's an impossible bind to be in. But interestingly, there's a book called The Memorial Candles, which said that in each family of Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust survivor appoints one designated child who will be kind of the keeper of the flame, the one who will pass on the message of the Holocaust to the next generation. That was me. You know, I didn't, you know, there's language and a vocabulary for all this stuff. It's so heavy for a five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid to, to hold. By the time I was 16, I wanted out. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with the Holocaust. I wanted nothing to do with this narrative. I wanted, you know, I was reading Jack Kerouac. I wanted to just be on the road and be a beat poet, writer. And I wanted nothing to do with that narrative of extreme helplessness and terror. I wanted nothing to do with that. Um, I did everything I could to get away from that. I, so I wanted to ask you about that because I've heard you talk about how you became interested in, in writing and reading in high school. How, who was kind of your door into that? Because obviously it wasn't at home, I would think. And from what I've heard, you hung out with mostly jocks and you were kind of like a, a bad boy. So how, what, what was your gateway drug into that world? So, you know, I began to, well, you know, because we moved around so much, I was, my brother and I were failing everything. <laughs> we would fail every school we went. We'd be in a school for like six months. And then my mother would pull us out and move us to another state. Were you too close? Howie and I? Yeah. When At you were that kids. time, when we were growing up, we were the only friends we had for each other. Yeah. yeah. So we were very extremely close mm-hmm. and, um, and failing all our subjects all the time. The only thing I could excel at was reading and writing. And he, I showed a kind of, um, you know, I, had a det- I was determined to become excellent at reading and writing. And I used to stay after school. They had these reading courses and these kind of cards that you could read through and accelerate and advance your reading level. And I advanced to a 12th grade reading level by the time I was like in the fifth grade. I would stay after school voluntarily. And my teacher, English student, was always like, wow, that's great. That's so great. And I did that on my own. The other thing was my mother, even though she, my father and mother were basically illiterate, my mother was an excellent storyteller, really excellent. And so I picked up a sense of storytelling from her and I began to write. I began to write when I was probably in the fifth grade is when I began to really write and get back compositions, you know, excellent, wonderful, A plus. So all my grades were failing except in writing. I clung to that for dear life. It gave me a sense of identity. I became known as the best writer in the class. And um, it gave me a sense of value, like I had value. I began to read books in public library. I was very kind of motivated as a kid. Uh, I began to read books by great writers to see how do you do that. And um, so by the time I got to high school, I went to Dewa Clinton High School in the Bronx. It was 7,200 boys, the biggest all-boys high school in the world. At that time, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records. Wow. The worst kids from the five boroughs. <laughs> but it had the best football team. I bet it did. And I wanted to play football very badly. 
you know, I wanted to be like Jack Kerouac, play football. And also I wanted to write. So I became, I went, I joined the literary magazine. It was called The Magpie. And I made the football team. And so I was writing and publishing my first stories in The Magpie when I was in high school. And I was also on the varsity football team playing offensive, defensive tackle. That was what I was doing. And um, my writing teacher, Ronald Greenhouse, you know, you cross paths with these people. I had in seventh grade a teacher named Miss Stein who's telling me, you know, you got to become a writer. You're a wonderful writer. You should be a writer. She was like this beautiful young lady from Michigan teaching in this Bronx junior high school. And she tell me, you know, you could be like Ernest Hemingway. You could be, you know, like Thomas Wolfe. It's like, who are they? She said, you read them, read them. And so I would read them. She was like, you could be like them. You're a wonderful writer, she would tell me. So I, I had, I met in school these wonderful teachers who inspired me to go forward as a writer. And uh, I was very lucky. All I can say is very, very lucky. Very lucky that the, the New York City educational system at that time was considered the best in the United States. Now it's a disaster. But then it was the best in the United States. And I, w- I was rescued by those teachers. Those teachers. Yeah. Rescued. I, that's a, you know, when they talk about childhood trauma and resilience, you know, one of the ways that can, one of the big impacts in how a dysfunctional upbringing can um, affect someone is if they have these positive forces, you know, whether it's at school, or if there's one person in their life that can be positive guiding force that that makes a world of a difference. You know, the, the, in psychology, they talk about something called soul murder. Mm-hmm. The child's soul is murdered by abuse. And it's the intervention of teach, a teacher or an adult or that can rescue that child from, from its soul being murdered. You know, give it, instill it with the reason, with the reason to live. Because that's what you lack. In the end, you, you don't understand why you should even be alive. I mean, if your own parents don't value you, what's the point, you know? And uh, if you're getting abused by someone who claims to love you, you're being told, I love you, and then being beaten. And you know, when, you look, when I look at normal children, you know, parents and children, a mother holding a child, caressing the child. My mother never touched me except to hit me. Mm. I couldn't ever hug my mother. She would push me away. She couldn't be bare to be touched. And she wouldn't touch me except to hit. She never came over and like kissed me or touched me or poor Alan. Or, I love you, Alan. She beat me. <laughs> And the way she showed love was when not to beat me and to let me into her secret world of the Holocaust. So that was weird. It's a kind of narcissism in a way, you know? Oh, it is. And it's amazing that you turned out like that everything turned out the way it did for you. It was you a know? rocky road. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you just celebrated 31 years, correct? Of sobriety? Of sobriety. So then you must have gotten sober after you came back from Israel? I got sober in 1990. Okay, so when did, when did um, drinking and drugs really become a, a major issue in your life? Well, 
when I was 16, I was a little bit, you know, drinking a little bit, uh, you know, using, you, there was no way you could avoid using drugs. We're talking yeah. about the 1960s, late 1960s. I mean, so I was using some drugs. I was drinking a little bit, you know, with the team, we'd go out drinking, but I wasn't really, you know, an addict or anything, an alcoholic. I, I was, but I didn't know it. I wasn't at that point. I had, I had football. I wanted to play football. But uh, when I turned 17, I, I got a girlfriend who was almost 20 and in community college. She's the one who kind of introduced me to like cigarettes and other things. And I began to drink more when I was with her. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was, uh, I went to Eastern Michigan for one semester and my, I went to Eastern Michigan to play football, but too much Kerouac, too much Ginsburg. You know, I went to practice. I was like, I don't want to do this. You know, I met these two guys, Goldie and Moondog, who were drug dealers. We would drive into Ann Arbor and hang out with the White Panthers. You know, the White Panther Party were like the Black Panthers. They were like in Michigan. And John Sinclair was put in prison for 10 years because he smoked a joint. You know, I was hanging out there, going to rock concerts, getting high. I stopped football. There was no football. And then I dropped out of there. I came back to New York. I was already on the road, you know. <laughs> I was hopping freights around the country with my friend George. and I was hitchhiking around and getting drunk, stoned. You know, I was already on the path. Then I went to City College of New York, you know, which all you had to do to graduate was just wear pants and a shirt. And no, I, I read a lot, though. I read and wrote. You know, I was publishing short stories. Uh, and then I went to Israel and I uh, kind of cleaned up my act in Israel. I went to the army. I was doing good. But um, after the war, when I came out of that, um, I had PTSD coming out of my ears. And uh, I was drinking, taking drugs just to get normal, you know, just to try to feel sane. Came back to New York. I went to Columbia University, graduate writing program, published a book. You know, it's that kind of you hit valleys and peaks, valleys and peaks up and down the kind of roller coaster. I was on it. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, in January of 1990, I was in the newspapers. I had a book published. I was running around in a London fog raincoat. I was, in, you know, being the, the writer in New York. And in June... By June of 1990, well, before that, I was living in the streets. Mm. I mean, the turnaround was so quick. It was like I jumped out of a window. <laughs> I mean, I was plummeting to earth, living in Tompkins Square Park and drinking myself to death. And I didn't care about books, writing, none of that stuff. I just wanted to drink and use drugs. And, um, and I hit my bottom. Um, in June 26, 1990, I went to my first recovery meeting, and that changed my life completely. And why, it, why this light went off, I never thought of myself as an alcoholic. I never thought I was, you know, even when I was in the streets, I was like, ah, I just, like, you know, this I'm is a choice. You know, this is a choice. It's a choice. <laughs> exactly. I'm exploring, you know, like George Orwell down and out in Paris. And London. Living life, baby. It's an exploration. <laughs> I'm not really in the streets. You know, I'm just exploring. Uh, I was really in the streets. <laughs> Dumpster diving, you know. Anyway, um, 
yeah, I went to my first meeting, a recovery meeting. I was like, I felt like I was home, the home that I never really had. I felt like it was with my true family, my true people. I don't know why to this day, I can't explain it. But I guess the explanation is I really was home and I really was with my true people, other alcoholics, recovering alcoholics and addicts. That's always my true family, much more than my real family, much more. And they saved my life. What can I say? They gave me a life. They gave me finally a life. And then at what point in your sobriety did the adult child issues um, start to come up? Because I know that you said at a certain point that you started to kind of dive into that stuff. Yeah, yeah. There. Did you um, hit a bottom around that or what happened? So um, what happened was in uh, 1990, I was, you know, in early sobriety. I came to San Francisco on a Greyhound bus and uh, ended up living in this boarding house in the lower Haight, which at that time was like poor, bohemian. It wasn't now, you know, like it is gentrified and all this. And um, I was living near the projects in this boarding house with this girl who was a very nice lady uh, who I was having an affair with. And um, <laughs> and she was also dealing stuff. Sounds about right. Sounds like what we do. Yeah. <laughs> or what you know I mean. Do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what happened was um, my sponsor at that time was this guy from Michigan, he had 10 years sober, which to me was like this impossible amount of time. I couldn't even believe it. I mean, it was, just, and he, we, we were in my house, my, you know, my room where that was shared with that girl and my mother was calling. And I was like, mom, I can't talk right now. Uh, I'll talk to you later. And, I hung, and then she called again. And he picked up the phone one time when it rang and it was my mother again. He said, you know, he says, Mrs. Kaufman, your son is dying of alcoholism and drug addiction. Are you aware of that? I was like, I couldn't believe he was saying that to her. And, and she's like, well, who are you? He goes, leave him alone. Leave your son alone. <laughs> and he hung up on her. I was like, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> I didn't have the nerve to do that. <laughs> you know, I'm an ACA. I'm you know, you got me on the line, mom. Okay, I'm your hostage now. Yeah. You know, I couldn't believe you did that. He said, look, just cut that tie. Just don't call her. Don't take her calls. And I didn't. She would call, I'd hang up. I needed to get some, I didn't know why. I needed to get some space. And, um, and then in the, in the meetings, somebody said to me, um, uh, you know what? You're an adult child of that. Of an alcoholic because I was talking about sharing about my family life and my father, the gambler, and you know, moving around the country, and um, my mother, the Holocaust survivor, and you know, not letting me even hug her or touch her, or never hugging me or touching me. And somebody came to say, you know, that's a classic adult child of alcoholic story. I said, oh, but my, my father wasn't really a drunk, uh, my mother didn't drink. They go, no, 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 that's not. It's not about that. It's about all the other stuff you're talking about. That's classic ACA stuff. I started going to ACA meetings. I was like, oh my God, I belong here. You know, this is true. This is me. I, you know, I started to explore the whole matter of codependency. Last thing I'll say is at that time, John Bradshaw, Bradshaw was like just becoming big. 
And I had a friend who was not in the program who somebody lent me tapes and from Bradshaw. And I listened to these tapes and I was just crying. I mean, I just couldn't stop crying. And I wasn't the easy crying type. You know, I was not, I was Mr. Bronx tough guy and all this. Uh, I started crying like a baby. It just opened up that door. And I, in that, behind that door was incredible pain that was ruling my life. Un, it was unexplored. I never really, I'd never gone in there. And I began to look at that very closely. You know, I, I embraced the fact that I was, I did have this incredibly dysfunctional childhood and something got warped in there. Something got hurt and I needed to, to heal that. What were some, I mean, were you able to identify some kind of core faulty beliefs that were ingrained in you? Yeah, through, through working the steps and, and also through therapy, through therapy. Um, in fact, I got a therapist who specialized in children, ACA stuff. And, um, you know, he, he was always bringing me back to that. Like we would go off, you know, into all kinds of, divergent areas, but he would always bring me back to the fact that I was an adult child. And um, that was very eye-opening and and worked. It worked. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You must, I mean, it works. I mean, if you address it, um, the healing does happen. The only thing is, though, you're never permanently fixed. Mm-hmm. It's always going to recur. And one has to be, you know, I'm 31 years clean and sober. I've had a wonderful running here. I'm 69 years old. I've got, you know, shelves full of books that I've published. And I've had a wonderful run in sobriety. But every so often, I remind myself that I am an adult child with an alcoholic. And I have to stay in touch with it. I can't presume that I'm healed. It's over. It's never, it's never over. Absolutely. It's sort of sort of like being an alcoholic, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm healed. No, I'm not cured. It's still one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also just to say that the, the more time I have, I mean, 31 years of this, um, you realize I don't want it to be over, that this is what my higher power, this is what my life has given me to contend with, to reveal about myself, to explore. And by doing that, I can help other people as you are helping other people. I mean, um, you know, that's very important. It's, it's like if somebody came to me and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you this pill. Tomorrow you're going to wake up. You're not going to be an alcoholic. You're not going to be you're an ACA. You'll be healed. I wouldn't take that pill. I say, you know what? No, I'm going to stay with who I am and what I am. This is part of my integrity as a human being. It's part of my experience. Yeah. It's what I can help others with too. I need help for it. And also I can help others. Sometimes the two are synonymous. Yes. So. Embracing our stories. Embracing That's, our stories. You know, big, big motivation for me in creating this podcast. So I'm curious, have you and your brother ever had conversations about um, just your differing experiences growing up? So, you know, like, most twins, like many twins, not all twins, but like some twins, my brother and I at a certain age went, went off in two completely different divergent directions. You know, if you are 
thrown together into the same dysfunctional stew pot and dressed alike and everything is the same and you're always together, kind of hostage to your situation, to your childhood. The moment you have some freedom, you just want to go off. You just leave that situation. And my brother and I did. And we never got back together in that respect. I mean, we're still in touch, but we took very different paths. Very, very different. As different as could be. And have very different values. My brother is a success in his life. He has a successful family life. He raised a daughter very successfully. And he had a successful run, a successful career. He's retired now. So he's a success. My brother's a success. He found a family that took him in and gave him the childhood that he never got and gave him the resources that he didn't have. You know, we had nothing. My brother and I were pathetically in a pathetic situation. So he found a family that gave him the resources to advance, and he did. He grabbed hold of it with both hands, and he did very well. He, he paid, their faith in him paid off. Um, that was one route. We, I did not take that route. I, I uh, took the route to be self-supporting through my own contributions and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and to pursue my art. That became, that was my, you know, I got to say <laughs> I had this sponsor named Old Joe who said to me, you know, after he, he said to me, he was my longest running sponsor and he really, he's gone now, Old Joe Hurlesey. But he said to me, look, he says, your sobriety is going to be, your life has to be two things now, two feet. You have to walk with two feet. One foot, your right foot is going to be your sobriety, your recovery, your recovery program. The other foot is going to be your writing. And those are the two feet you're going to walk through life now. Recovery, writing, recovery, writing. And see where it takes you. And go where it takes you. And so that's what I did. You know, in 2016, I was in New York. I was uh, there as a, as a, it was 2017. I was there in 2017 as a, um, uh, I had a fellowship kind of, at the New York Public Library. Uh, it was a residency, that's the term. I had a residency at the New York, a writer's residency at the main 42nd Street Library at my own office. It was incredible. It was like a dream. <laughs> and I, while I was in New York, I managed to do two books and it got published. So I was living there, I was doing that. And um, I got a call from Joe, who I knew was very ill. And he said to me, you know, I just want you to know that tomorrow I'll be gone. I'll be dead. I was like, whoa. He says, and I just wanted to tell you before I die that you're, you have been the most important thing in my life. You is my sponsee, my friend, that I love you. And I, I want you to know that I love you and that I, you mean everything to me. And the next day he was gone. You know, nobody... My mother and my father, they didn't call me to say that when they passed. My mother had never even said, I love you. My father said it to me once begrudgingly. I almost made him say it, as ACAs will do. You know, you must, you must tell me that. <laughs> I need to hear that. 
tell it to me, you know, okay. Even if you don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you know me, exactly. But he said it, he called me out of the blue the day before he died. He knew he was going to die. To tell me that. Yeah. I mean, what is that? That's love. That's, that's the power of recovery. Mm. And uh, to this day, I'm very moved deeply by that. Me too. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> incredible. I moved right now. <laughs> you know, the, the fact that even the day before he's going to die, he's thinking about someone else. Mm-hmm. He's like laying there in a hospital wherever he was, you know, dying. He's thinking he should, I should call Alan and let him know that I love him before I go. It's amazing, you know. That's just so amazing to me. I wouldn't have written any books if it had not been for him, but for Joe. We called him old Joe. And it was him, you know, he's the one who put my, my feet on the path in recovery to write and said, that's part of your program. You can't work the steps and run around being Mr. Do-Gooder and not write. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And he was right. And I remember he walked me through my book. My first book was Jew Boy. I was like, he said, you got to write about the fact that your mother was a Holocaust survivor. What was that like? It was kind of an ACA kind of mission. Like, go back into your childhood. Talk about that. What happened? And I did. One of the most difficult things I ever did in my life was writing Jubal. It was incredibly hard. Was your mother still alive at that point? No. no. So she passed away. Was it in 93 or 94? 94. Yeah. So did she remain tormented for the rest of her life? To I mean- the end. To the end. There was no, there was no relief. Did her and your father stay married? To the end. Mm-hmm. You know, that was more of like a cultural thing, you know, back to her generation. You just didn't get divorced no matter what. Anybody in their right mind would have, but not her. And not him either. So yeah. to his credit, he stayed. He stayed to his credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stayed with her. So when your mother passed away, she left you all these letters. Um, talking about her childhood. And I know that at first that wasn't something that you could go. You didn't, you didn't think you could go down that path. And then I know a, f- a couple of years ago um, when you were taking a, a trip overseas, that kind of prompted you to, to read those letters. Could you talk about what that experience was like reading them for the first time? Sure. So my mother, what happened was in the last year of her life, I asked her, I started asking her about the Holocaust again. And I asked her to please write letters describing her experience in Holocaust. And she sent me, she ended up writing 120 something pages of letters describing her experiences in Holocaust. I did not read those letters. She would say, what do you think of the last letters? Oh, it's great. Send me the next one. Did not even open the envelopes. I read, I tried reading the first one, shut down inside, completely shut down. Everything shut down. My whole system went, somebody pulled the plug. It was going, oh, I shut down. You know, as we do. I went numb. Couldn't bear to read it. Those, book, those letters were in a, in a box in a closet. I would not open them. And uh, what happened was uh, in 2000 and I'm going to say 2017, 16, 17, whatever. Um, I kept getting invitations to go read in Europe. Because my books, some of my books were translated into Dutch, German, published in England, in English editions. 
So I ended up doing a lot of touring through Germany, Austria, Holland, England, you know, all these different countries. Um, and to Scot Scotland, I love Scotland. Anyway, um, the uh, letters. Um, so what happened was I was going to read, to do a, an event, to do some readings in Germany. Mm -hmm. And some friends of mine were from New York, some writer friends were, happened to be in Italy. And they said, hey, Alan, come to Italy. I was like, oh, all right, yeah, I'll do that. So when I was staying with some of these festival organizers after the festival in, in Zurich, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to go to De Monte, to San Pons, to this little village in the Alps, the Italian Alps on the French border, to see where my mother was hiding with the Italian, with the Italian resistance. And they looked on the map. And they said, there's, no, there's not even train service there. How are you going to get there? Because I can't drive to save my life. And uh, they go, how are you going to get there? I, go, I don't know. I'll, I'll get there. So Mad Magdalena turned to her husband, um, ha uh, Heinz, and said, Heinz, drive him to Italy. And, he's, and, he, and, and Elias, who is my German publisher, Austrian publisher, he said, I'm coming to. So I ended up going to De Monte in the north of Italy, in the Alps, with these two, with this, these two Austrians. Mm -hmm. And on the way, Heinz tells me that his father was in the SS mm. and that his father had killed a lot of Jews. Then Elias tells me his father was in the Wehrmacht, the German army, he was in the invasion of Russia, which anybody who knows the history knows that they killed unbelievable numbers of Jews in the invasion of Russia. I'm sorry. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm going to see where my mother was hiding in the Alps, the Italian Alps with, from the Nazis. And I'm going there with the two sons of Nazis. What's going on here? Anyway, to make a long story short, we made it to this place. I found you, we almost didn't make it. But we made it all the way in the mountains. And um, I knew that the family's name was Malkio. I knew from the letters that the family name of the resistance leaders were, from that village were Malkio. And I went up to this lady who was at a well. She was at a well. It's like this primitive village. And I said, Familia Malkio, Familia Malkio. And she said, ah, see, see. And she comes back with this guy who I'm friends with to this day. And... It was it was from uh, the Malkios. And um, anyway, through broken English and a little bit of French and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, we all end up sitting in this cottage telling stories about our parents. And um, it was like this crazy, you know, there I am, Jewish son of Holocaust survivor from France, sitting with these two sons of Nazis and sitting with the son of the resistance leader from the village. The Italians. It was this crazy moment, you know? And we were all like sharing what it was like for us. That was kind of like an ACA movement in a way. <laughs> I would say so. So then prior to going on this trip though, that's when you read the letters? Yes. I read the letters and I traced the route that she took, you know, through the letters, um, which showed me that she ended up in Demonte. 
So what was that experience like reading them for the first time? Uh, I shut down again and I would have to do work, meditation, prayer, meetings, inventory with, you know, to, with my sponsor, um, talking to other people, the things we do in recovery to get through that experience, because it was the most staggering emotionally, psychologically, the most staggering experience I I complete every letter I read, I was, I would make it past two pages and I would shut down. I was like, no, 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 keep going. You know, keep going. Don't I pray or meditate or continue tomorrow. Um, Call your sponsor. You know, I did the things we do. So I went through those letters an inch at a time. It was terrible. I just couldn't, the pain of those letters was just unbearable. What this woman had been through, it was unbearable. You know, Mark Willen talks a lot about how the importance of, of healing our relationship with our parents and how that doesn't necessarily mean that it's directly with them, but healing our relationship with our parents inside of us. And so I would imagine reading those letters and then going on this journey that that whole experience was a rather healing journey for you. It was. I can't say what other people should do, but I think that for me, yeah, I had to. It, it, there's an inevitability to the thing. You know what I mean? I had to do this. Um, I had to, you know, even how I got those letters, by the way, you know what I mean? I had to, you know, why would I do that? Why would I say to my mother, start writing your letters about this? Um, why would I do that? You know, I, and not read them. <laughs> you know, she dies. I just put them away. It's like, can't be. I don't even want to read those. But we, you know, we do these things for a reason. We're on a journey. Mm-hmm. We have an assignment. And, you know, to look in the past, to go into the past, and, um, and to discover what happened there and how we came about and why we are today who we are. And also why we're free of the past, too. We're, we're you know created in a way by the past, but also we have the option to be liberated from the past. We don't have to hang back there and say, I'm forever wounded, I'm forever ruined by the past. The past no longer becomes our um, captor. You know, it no longer becomes our, our prison. You know, we don't, we're not prisoners of the past. We go into the past voluntarily to inquire. You know, when I was... Um, a little kid, like, you know, fourth grade, during the terrible time, you know, with the beatings and all this, I used to pray, you know, we were all locked in there in this little apartment in the Bronx, me and my brother and my mother, and my mother raging, you know, chasing me around with a rolling pin, you know, beating me, you know, it was a horror. And I used to like pray, you know, please, some adult to come in and, and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, just look at this little boy. He's, he loves you. He's a beautiful little boy. He's a bright boy. Why are you doing this? Stop. But that person never came. Mm-hmm. When I got sober and began to do this inner work, um, I became that adult. Mm-hmm. I went back into the past. I opened the door. I saw the little boy that I was. I saw her. Mm-hmm. You know, I took his hand and said to her, what's going on here? You know, with love, not with accusation. What's going on here? Why are you 
doing this to this little child who loves you and you love him. What's going on? I became that adult. And once I took his hand, I never let go. I kept holding that little boy's hand. And I hold that little boy's hand even today, 31 years, 69 years old, 31 years old. old. I hold that little boy's hand every day. And because that child is a wonderful child, that inner child is a wonderful child. It's a source of great radiance and creativity and love. But we have to take his hand or her hand. We have to take that hand and hold it, hold it each day. I also wonder too, if that, you know, having your mother write those letters before she passed away, I mean, we wouldn't have, we don't know this, or at least I don't think you know this, but I mean, in a way, I think that that was her connecting with her inner child as well. Like I, I would imagine that there was some sort of a healing experience for her to get that all out on paper. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, the voice in those letters, I had never heard that voice before. I'd never met that person before. And then I met her through those letters. And it was a, you know, a young woman with a lot of intelligence and hope and uh, courage and uh, amazing, you know, an amazing voice. Well, your story is so fucking powerful. Now's the time we're going to be like, I just made it all up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, actually I've written books. <laughs> Drunken angel, you know, well, I will be including links to everything like that. And then I'm hoping that you can send me the link so people can read your mother's letters. Oh, yeah, I will. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure to do that. Thank you so much. Seriously. You're welcome. This was amazing. And um, where can people find you if you want to be found? Um, so, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll send you a link. I mean, I don't really have a website or something. You know, I don't really... My publishers have websites with me on, you know, all that, but uh, I don't really. Simon & Schuster, you can look. Uh, basic Books, they have a website for me. but Maybe they can find you through me. <laughs> is that? Yeah, through you. Um, it, it, just Google me and put author and writer, and you'll see all kinds of stuff comes up. Okay. Oh, Facebook. A lot of people connect to me through Facebook now. Uh, so you can connect to me through Facebook. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your honesty and your vulnerability. And this was truly oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Thank you again to Alan. That was fucking amazing. Let me know what you guys thought. Please check out the show notes for links to his books and to all of his stuff, as well as additional resources to help you related to this topic. You will also find links to my social media, I am on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. I'm going to skip Hit a Girl up today as this was a longer interview, but I do just want to give a shout out to Michelle T. I just went down to Southern California for a vacation for a few days and I got to meet uh, Michelle, who is one of my listeners. And I just think it's so amazing this community that is being created from this podcast. So cool. Again, we need to figure out an adult child conference. I don't want to do a conference. That sounds boring, actually. Like an adult child party or something. Let's manifest that shit. 
I would love to hear from you guys, though. If you have comments, questions, concerns, hit a girl up, see show notes for ways to contact me. I'll see y'all next week for another great episode of Adult Child. It's going to be raw. It's going to be vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be goody. I promise. Let it all go.